0: This is Julia Adams, and you are listening to Monster Kid Radio. Have a good time.
1: We're opening episode 405 of Monster Kid Radio with a song from the band Lost Culture. The song is called Purple Waves and is from their self-titled album, which you can find at lostculturenj.bandcamp.com. The NJ stands for New Jersey, because that's where they're from. They're from Asbury Park, New Jersey. You can check them out on Bandcamp, on Facebook, or do a search for the hashtag, your favorite hunk rock band, or you can even see them in concert. We've got a couple shows coming up in February. I'll talk about that here. In a second, let's talk about the podcast you're listening to right now. It's Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and I want to welcome you to the show that's been going for over 400 episodes. And you know, when I look at all the episodes that I've got, uh, you know, the number that we've hit, that sort of thing, I look back at some of the earlier shows and way back, way back with episodes number 77 and 78. We had somebody on the show by the name of Dennis Vincent. Dennis is a filmmaker, and back then he was working on a movie, a remake of a John Agar film. Well, life happens. Things change. That movie, well, he'll tell you about it because I've got him on the show this week to talk about his new movie, the one that is available for you to see right now. It's called Rage of the mummy he's going to tell us all about it and you know this conversation didn't exactly go the way that i thought it would it went 10 times 20 times 100 times better because what dennis did what he gave me and ultimately gave you is basically just a breakdown of his entire creative process which i found fascinating and of course it's flavored by all things monster kid because dennis vincent He's a monster kid, maybe a non-traditional monster kid. And again, he'll tell you about that when we talk with him here in a little bit. This is a fun conversation. The movie's a lot of fun, too. I've already put a link in the show notes where you can go and buy it yourself from Amazon or just look it up on Amazon and stream the thing. It's there for you as well. If you're a member of Amazon Prime, you can stream it for free. You know, it's a fun ride. And, of course, I love me my mummy movie. So, Dennis is going to tell us all about that. Before we get into that, though, I told you that Lost Culture's got some shows coming up. I want to tell you that on April 4th, they're going to be playing with the Flying Theaters and the Bali Llamas at Little Buddy Hideaway in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Again, that's April 4th. And then on April 5th, for Surf Sunday, they're playing with Black Flamingos and Surfer Joe at Roxy and Duke's Roadhouse. and That's in Dunellen, New Jersey. I apologize for any Dunelinians. Is that right? Denizens of Dunellen? if I've mispronounced the name of your town, I'm sorry, but I didn't mispronounce the name of the band. Again, it's lost culture. They gave us permission to play their music. It's awesome. It's so much fun. You're going to hear this song at the end of the show in its entirety. But first, we've got to talk with Dennis Vincent, and that's coming up right after this.
2: The author of Psycho is back with the most unusual horror shocker you will ever see. Uh, The house that dripped blood. Welcome to Hampstead Manor, one of the most beautifully mysterious estates in all of England. No one quite understands why it's been on the market for so long, at such a low price. But there is a reason. And after you spend a night at Hampstead, you'll know why. (laughs) Uh, The house that dripped
3: blood.
2: One by one, you will meet the previous owners. They're all still around, lurking, watching, waiting for you. The House That Dripped Blood. A murderously monstrous movie starring that terror team that will thrill and chill you to the very bone. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. The House That Dripped Blood. A special Midnight Encore from Filmways, rated PG. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand
1: it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No,
4: no. Show me what?
1: Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away!
4: Get away!
5: George! George. Get away.
4: Are you attracted to the dark, fascinated by the dramatic, with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can
2: happen. Bum- Fear will freeze you when you face it. The Mummy. Torn from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it rises from the quiet dust of centuries to wreak a strange vengeance against mankind. The Mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. The Mummy. It sees without eyes, it lives without breath, yet its desires are strangely, madly human. The motion picture screen's most shocking experience in suspense, in chilling technicolor, the mummy.
1: This is Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get... excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night... Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky von Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, if you go back into the archives to almost, wow, almost five years ago, we had Dennis Vincent on the show. He was a filmmaker, he's a monster kid, and he's this week's guest on Monster Kid Radio as well. Welcome back to the show, Dennis. Oh, Thanks for having me. How you doing, Derek? It's been a while. How are you doing? <laughs> oh, I'm doing pretty good. I've been busy,
5: still busy. I know we had talked last time years ago <laughs> when I was trying to make the Cosmic Creature, and um, that didn't go through. I had a few things that kind of failed. It wasn't really the finances. It was actually, in this case, it was uh, some actors that I had. It didn't work out through part of the production, so I replaced her with someone else. And then I lost that actress to uh, Hollywood. She went out and started doing things out there. I can't blame her. So that one kind of fell through the cracks. Part of it was also is that I could only shoot seasonally. Mm-hmm. It was m- most of this film was actually written to be about 80% of it outdoors. So I could only shoot during the summer, unfortunately. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to get smart. Let me, let me make one that's 80% indoors. Okay? So that I only have to shoot, you know, like maybe 20% <laughs> outdoors and we'll, we can do this all indoors. And I live in an old Victorian home and, you know, in, here in Denver. And uh, it was built in 1890. And it needs a lot of repair, but it's perfect for a spook house. It's almost like the Adams Family, you know, kind of look to the house. Oh, wow. So we have very strange angles on the roof or, you know, inside the ceilings and things like that. There's walk-in closets that go back into other rooms and stuff. So it's really kind of neat. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a movie. Based on that. So I did something that was sort of a, I guess, kind of a goosebumps type movie. So it had involved kids or like a hocus pocus movie is a little bit like that cross between the two. Sure. Sure. And I wrote that. It took me several months and I, and I got funding from it. It was from a friend of ours who was going to, she was going to actually finance the whole thing. And unfortunately she passed away before she was able to give them. She had a, oh. yeah, she had a brain tumor and they, they botched the surgery unfortunately. And so I I lost the funding on that movie. And so now I'm so
1: sorry to hear that, man.
5: uh, I know it was awful. Um, But so we advanced to like 2016. Now I had some money and then I had family that chipped in. So they said, what can you do with this? So I said, well, let me see what I have. So from the other movie, which was called Creepy Island, that was the one that I was going to do shoot here at the house. We were going to have mummies in it. And I already had a mummy head. And I was already working on a sarcophagus that I was going to use. So I said, you know what? We also have a desert here in Colorado, which is the Great Sand Dunes. So I said, you know what? I'm going to make a mummy movie because I've already got part of the costume. And so I wrote this movie in 23 days because I knew if I didn't shoot it by the end of the month, summers we're going to be way into summer. And there's just no way we're going to get it shot out in time. So I wrote it, and then we just started shooting. I, and I didn't really cast anybody for this. I already had been working with a lot of actors at this point. Some of the work I get paid for sometimes is sort of a trade-off. You know, they could help me with my projects. But there's a lot of local filmmakers here, and I'd worked with some of these actors. So I just approached them, and I knew really pretty much what their range was and what they could do. And, and I asked them if they'd be interested in doing it, and, and they all said yes. So I actually made the movie, <laughs> in a sense. It was just, uh, just like that. Wow.
1: Yeah. Well, we finally have a movie to watch. I am I'm thrilled. And we're going to talk all about that. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the cast because there is somebody that mm-hmm. people might recognize if they were a fan of a particular show that recently came to an end on the Sci-Fi channel. And we'll get to all of that. We'll get to all of that. But Dennis, there's been something that we've added to the show since you've been on. Every time we have somebody on, we play a game called The Classic Five. Mm-hmm. Oh, are yeah. you familiar with the game, Yeah, because
5: I listen to the show all the time, so yeah, I'm very familiar with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who don't know, or, or brand new listeners, The Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style type question? There are no wrong answers. And I know we just called it a game, but really it's a conversation starter and an icebreaker. Dennis, are you ready to play? I am, but I'm very
5: nervous. <laughs> Little I know.
1: <laughs>
3: but here we go. All right. Uh,
1: no, that's all right, man. You'll be fine. There are no <laughs> wrong answers, man. All right. right off the top. And I swear, I don't plan this, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but it seems like every time somebody comes on the show and I play the classic five more often than not, a card will come up. That is pretty relevant to that guest. And this one is a mummy one, right? (laughs) Dennis. No, actually, no, this one is, what is your favorite John Agar movie?
5: Oh, well, my favorite John Agar movie is tarantula. Okay.
1: Okay. I, and I, I say it's relevant because of the night fright connection and, and all that. So we'll, we'll talk about that too.
5: No, I like that one too. Tra- I like them both. The tarantula is one that I just, I don't know, I like doing a lot.
0: <laughs> but what if circumstances were to magnify one of in size and strength, took it out of its primitive world and turned it loose in ours? Then expect something that's fiercer, more cruel and deadly than anything that ever walked the earth. Even science
2: was stunned. The new atomic miracle should have been mankind's greatest boon. Instead, when such power to cause phenomenal growth proved dangerously unstable, man was confronted with his most shocking blunder. The isotope triggered our nutrients into a nightmare. A blunder that transformed a tiny insect into the 100-foot spider that was now ravaging the panic-stricken countryside.
1: It's it's a fantastic film. All right, card number two, what was the most recent monster movie that you've watched? The most recent? Let me see. I watched, I think, uh, Night of the Bloody
5: Apes.
2: It's the night of the bloody apes. Creatures born of madness. Half-man, half-beast. All
3: horror. It's the monster!
2: The night of the bloody apes. One man shares their terrible secret. One man challenges nature night, bloody apes, sharing their bloodlust in the name of science, daring divine will with his bizarre creations. But a horrible half-beast half you. They strike again, <laughs> and again, and again. The lust of a man in the body of a beast. What can stop them? What can appease them?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Night of the Bloody I love that movie. Yes, I I love those luchador films and stuff. I actually, I, I lived in Mexico between 72 and 73 when I was nine. Oh, wow. And I I actually saw Santos and the Blue Demon actually wrestle in in the rings and stuff. And I actually seen some of those films actually in the
1: theaters there. So, yeah. Oh, man. Um, That was fun. Oh, now now I'm jealous. Now I'm really jealous. Okay. (laughs) But I won't hold it against you. Here we go. (laughs) All right. Card number three.
3: (laughs) All right.
5: Actually, I still have the toys. No, actually, I'll tell you one thing. I still have the toys. They actually used to make these injection mold plastic toys of Santa and the Blue Demon and Doctor X and all these other ones. I still have those those figures that I still carry. with. They used to paint them with like tester model kit paints and all the kids did because they,
1: that was like they were all into That's pretty cool. So it's, it's,
5: anyway, sorry to interrupt.
1: <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Uh, uh, Super 7, it's a toy company that's been putting out retro style action figures, uh, has released oh. a Blue Demon, uh, a ton of, was there, I, think, I don't know if there's a Santa, I don't know who else was there but I've seen the Blue Demon uh, and it's it's like a little mm-hmm. old uh, three and three quarter inch style action figure, you know, for the old Star Wars action figure okay. size. Yeah, they're on my wish list.
5: <laughs> okay. Yeah, these ones are articulated. They're just, like I said, injection mold and plastic. And oh, sure. You would, just, you would get them, they're sort of like a flesh color, and then you would just paint
1: them. But this is back in 72, so we're talking, I mean, I'm 56, so I'm an old guy now. So, <laughs> you know, uh, that was a while back. No, nah, that's cool, though. I really, man, super jealous. Okay, card number three before I let my jealousy take over. <laughs> Who is your favorite giant monster, King Kong or Godzilla?
5: Oh, King Kong, for sure. Yeah? Yeah, I
1: love King Kong.
5: I mean, I've seen some of the Godzillas and I, I like those as well. But yeah, King Kong, man, that movie is so good. Wow. It's probably one of the top five favorite films.
1: Yeah. King Kong for sure. It, it definitely transcends uh, the genre. It is just such an amazing film from start to finish. So I agree with you. Fantastic. Although I love my Godzilla, but mm-hmm. I think the film itself, King Kong. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. All right. Card number, what is this? Four. What two 1940s monster movies would make a great double feature? Let's see if I have it right. Uh, the Wolfman and Son of Frankenstein. I think Son of Frankenstein was 39, but that's pretty darn close. Uh, I, 39? I, uh, okay. But, but, you know, you got two Bela Lugosi appearances, so.
5: Yeah. I mean, and the reason I would like those together, is just because those are my early childhood memories of films I watched with my father when I would watch Creature Features. Those two films I remember the most. Uh, the Wolfman. And that's why I think I like Werewolves a lot, even now. But there was that one and there was also like Son of Frankenstein. I like because of the boy, the little kid, uh, Donnie Donegan, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, where he's being led, you know, around, you know, with Frankenstein and they're like friends. So I I never got scared because I I always liked that scene with them. I think those, those are like the the movies that stand out the most to me besides Terror Island. That was another one that sticks out in my mind when I was a kid. But those two, I think would make a good couple of features just because of that. Sentimental reason.
1: Okay. So that works for me. Okay, final card. I'm going to stack the deck here, and I am going to ask, what's your favorite mummy movie? <laughs> okay, that one's easy for me, uh, The Mummy Shroud, the Hammer Horror Film. Really?
3: Yeah,
5: I really like that one a lot. I, l- I also like, second to that would probably be uh, Blood from the Mummy's Tomb with uh, Valerie Leon, I think it's her name. It doesn't have a mummy in it. But I think it's such a good movie. It's sort of a modern take. It's a very interesting film, but I like that one a lot, too. And then, of course, I like all the ones with the Chaney in them. But those yeah, those movies I like a lot. And I do like the Christopher Lee one, you know, The Mummy. I do like that. It's really well done. The production is is so good, but it it just doesn't seem to hold my attention as much as... uh, the, the mummy shroud, and, and I like that because I, I like Michael Ripper a lot.
1: Oh man, I, I was going to say that, that that's got the best Michael Ripper performance. I feel like yeah, so good, <laughs> so good in that. And I never realized how good he was,
5: but he can play a tough guy, and he can play a very weak type person that you know that kind of cowers under under his boss and stuff he's so good yeah uh michael ripper i, I really really like him and that's why i named one of the guys in my movie tony rippers so and just <laughs> just as a, an homage to him because i really do uh like him a lot
1: but yeah I love that you brought up some Hammer mummy movies because I I love those as well. And if you've been listening to the show, you know, and listeners know, Mm -hmm. I love me my mummy movies. I love mummy films. There's just something about a mummy movie that just gets me going. It just just really excites me and makes me want to sit and watch. And it doesn't matter where it's from, who made it, or, or whatever. I mean, it's a bonus when they're good movies. But, you know, I'll watch a Mummy yeah. movie. Just put it in front of me and I'll put it in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, they are, they're a lot of fun. And I've seen others. I can't
5: remember the title off the top of my head. But the ones that really stand out for me are, are, are those. I really like the, the Mummy Shroud. I never tire of watching that. I can just watch it over and over and over again. I, I just like the look. Cause they, they're, they're making it from, I guess it's supposed to take place in the 1920s is when that. You know, although it was made I think in the sixties, sixty eight I think it was made. But uh, uh yeah, yeah, around around then, yeah. Yeah, it was around that time period. But but I just like everything about that movie.
1: I just like it. So that, that's my favorite one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like everything about it, too, including the tagline, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come <I> on. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's a perfect one for me. There's a lot of action in it. It doesn't slow down. I just think it's perfect. <laughs> well, we, we've kind of transitioned from playing the Classic Five, which was a lot of fun, to talking about mummy movies. Uh-huh. How long have you loved or or been enamored by mummy films? I mean, is this something that you grew up loving or did you discover them later? Actually, yeah. Now, see, I didn't get
5: into monster movies or even movies all that much. I I went to movies when I was a kid. My parents would take me to the drive-in and we'd watch everything. I remember seeing Planet of the Apes uh, when all those series came out when I was a kid. (laughs) This is when they used to take the kids and they would put them in pajamas and we'd sit in the back of the car and... We got to see all the spaghetti Westerns and, you know, every so I, I grew up watching those as a kid, but I was more of a kid that spent most of my time outdoors as a teenager and, and as a younger kid. I didn't really watch a lot of film or even, even TV. Um, what happened was is that I, I got into looking at monster movies and, and monsters in general, kind of by accident. I didn't go to a film school at all. I went to actually to art school. I have a BFA in fine art and I had started painting after I'd gotten married and uh, I was going to go off to New York, but that didn't really happen. So I was adding, I was doing different things with my artwork and I'm what they call a pop surrealist. So I do things that have pop culture elements in it with a lot of this like hyperrealism to it. And they're just sort of like objects that would float around kind of like in a collage. And I was always looking for different subject matter, you know, that put in my paintings. And then I liked this band and they were called White Zombie that had Rob Zombie in it. And this was before he went off on his own. And he used to have images on his CDs and even in his videos of monsters. And I was like, oh, I kind of remember those when I was a kid. I remember the wolf man. Remember, you know, he had all uh, different things like those elements in there. And I thought, I'm going to start placing those in my painting. You know, I want to start adding those elements in there. And then when I started to get you know, people that knew something about monsters, they, they would look at my monster like I painted a, a Frankenstein head. And they go, is, is that Glenn strange, or is that Boris Karloff? Because they go, I can't tell. And I go, what do you mean? And they go, well, which one? Oh, I didn't even know there was a difference <laughs> between the two. I mean, that's how naive I was. I started laughing. They go, boy, you got a lot to learn. And I said, no, I guess I do. So I started getting curious about these movies, because I had, I had only seen, like I said, a few of them. We'd watch Creature Features when I was little my, with my dad. I would watch some of those. And so I started to look in in, like, blockbusters for these movies. And and the only one I found were like, I think, The Bride, Frankenstein I saw, and then Frankenstein. And I started to really like these films. I wanted to learn more about it. Eventually, I started seeing more of these films. And and that's how I really got involved with it. What happened was there was a guy who was showing these films at a local theater uh, because I couldn't find a lot of them you know, that I was looking for. I'd go into blockbusters. They didn't have anything. So he started showing a lot of them and he had this museum and uh, he had monsters in there uh, in these museums. So he had like, you know, Frankenstein and the Wolfman and all these. At that time that I had met him, I I started seeing a lot of the films that he was showing. What I wanted to do before that was I was going to make instructional art video because I thought, well, that's what I'll do. So I started getting um, like video cameras and I started shooting artists doing things. But then when I met him and he had this museum, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to hone my skills on learning how to how to maybe make a, like a 20-minute documentary on his museum. Well, eventually, I found doing these instructional art videos really boring, but I found the museum and the monsters more interesting. So <laughs> I just dropped that, and I said, forget it. I'm just going to do – it turned out to for 20 minutes, it went to two hours. This, this documentary turned into wow. a two-hour documentary. So he knew Sarah Karloff. So we got interviews with Sarah Karloff and Ron Chaney. And we got interviews with Bela Lugosi Jr. And, and then the list goes on. We, but we put all of that into the mix and created this documentary based on the museum and the people that supported that museum. And that's how I ended up getting into this monsterdom, this, this monster thing. And, I, and it, well, we had Dick Smith. We had Dick Smith. We had several. Um, we shot a lot of things on Dick Smith, actually. We didn't get it all in there because I think we had probably the most comprehensive interview with Dick Smith. At that point, he actually lived not too far. I, I had lived in Bristol, Connecticut, and uh, Dick Smith lived in Bradford, Connecticut, which was close to New Haven. So it was only like 20 minutes away. So we saw him and we did interviews there with that and put the whole thing together. And that's why I ended up with the first documentary. And then we went from there into the Aurora monster model kits. But in that time, I started seeing a lot of these films, and I started getting familiar with monsters, and I really just loved the genre. But I don't know everything. There's still movies that I see that are brand new to me, and people are surprised. You haven't seen that? I said, no. Um, you know, but I think sometimes they envy that because, you know, they, they've seen these movies countless times and the excitement is to see them for the first time, you know.
1: That's true. There is something about that. that, that yeah. So that's mm-hmm. kind of
5: how I got into it. So I'm I'm a, I'm a newcomer <laughs> to really to this, but I really love it. And, and part of the thing is, is that I don't really learn too much just because I'm spending so much time, you know, trying to, to get the films made. A lot of work goes into this. But part of what I like about not knowing enough about it is that you kind of approach it with a, f- a fresh look, a fresh eye. When I was a painter, I remember uh, I knew everything about art history. I knew about every every single artist, everything they did, and every, you know, all that. And I always felt like it was hard for me to actually start to put the first brushstrokes on the canvas because I'd always think, well, it's too much like him. Or it's too much like that. You know, it sort of froze me up. And so the fact that I don't know a lot about film is that. I kind of approach it in a naive fashion, so I kind of create something new sometimes or something that's different that they never would have thought to do. It's like the old painters. They have the what they call the outside painters, the outsiders, uh, or the ones that are the naive painters. Mm-hmm. And they're not they're not formally trained, but they take a whole new approach to things I never would have thought of doing as a painter. Like, oh my God, I never would have thought of throwing mayonnaise in my, in my oil paints or throwing sand in it or something. You know words, <laughs> you know, they take it such an unconventional way because they're not trained. And so that's sort of my outlook for approach towards film is I try to look for unconventional ways. And I think if I get too bombarded with too much information, I I start to then making
1: comparison. But that's me. You know, I don't know. That's just the way I, I take the approach if that makes sense to you. I don't know if it does. (laughs) I completely follow what you're saying, and uh, you know, uh, you've heard me say it on the show. Listeners have heard me say it. I used to think I was going to be a filmmaker when I grew up, and I think that might have been part of my problem, is that I learned so much and and watched so many documentaries and went to so many classes and all this that maybe it kind of froze me up a little bit when it came time for me to really start doing it. So, yeah, I completely understand, man. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it's not like I'm completely
5: naive. I'm not. I mean, I understand the vernacular of cinema. I really do. I understand that part of it. What I don't understand is I don't I don't know all the minutiae I don't know all the like, you know, what happened that day with Boris Karloff. I don't know, you know, he he left that studio for this studio. I I don't know all that stuff. Um, and I don't know certain things, you know, like certain script writers who wrote that. And, you know, I I know some of them, you know, but again, I don't know all those little details. I, I watch the film, I let it wash over me, and then I get inspiration from it. And then I go from there. You know, that's kind of what I do. Um, but I, I don't really study the film like I don't pick up a book about and learn what happened on you know Ghost of Frankenstein. I I, I really don't know what happened. I just I just watch the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean. And then I just take inspiration from it and do it that way. It would probably be good for me because what I do like I w- I will say about film. What I do like is I like looking at all the photos, the behind the scenes photos from the 40s and stuff. I want to see how they lit things. So anytime I can get a chance to see to what you know kind of lighting they're using, how they actually set things up, or anything that gives me kind. A clue to help me uh, make my film closer to that that's what I like to look at and I so I collect a lot of those a lot of these behind the scenes photos which I really like and I do hear the commentary some of the documentaries you'll hear uh like Tom Weaver We'll talk a lot. He'll do an interview like with the 50-foot woman, Yvette
1: Vickers. You know, he'll do this interview with her and I'm learning stuff. You know, I'm learning things because they're just talking about it and what they did and I, and I love that stuff. Well, there, there's no wrong way to enjoy a movie and, and to enjoy being a monster kid and I mean, like you said, sometimes you can just sit down and let them wash over you and that, that makes mm-hmm. total sense. I totally understand what you're saying. I get it and I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> a reason why you and I get along. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. In the ancient land
6: of the pharaohs, Beyond the Valley of the Doom, 13 sacred relics were taken from this tomb. Now, 17 will die in Rage of the Mummy. He is the Mummy Prince. And for these thieves, their luck is about to run out.
1: Rabbit's foot? Really?
6: And their accomplices, the Pharaohs of Darkness,
1: Can I have everyone's attention, please? They
6: will have learned too late. Of the legendary curse of Prince Haruskin's tomb. He will rise and bring deadly vengeance on them. No matter how far he must travel, he will find them. Master of disguises, the mummy prince can change his appearance at will. <laughs> Nothing can stop him. And for detectives Blake and Crawford, the body count is piling up.
0: Blake, yeah, come take a look at this.
6: There's nowhere to run. Nowhere
0: to hide.
6: He will find you. And when he does, Ah! heads will roll. Rage of the Mummy. Coming soon.
5: (laughs) So the inspiration for uh, Rage of the Mummy, the inspiration for that really came from Vincent Price's The Abominable Dr. Fibes from '70. Too, really? Yeah, that's really where it came from. That one and also from, well, I'll explain the other film, but I figured what I could do possibly, because I, I liked the way it was built up. It was it was a revenge story where he had different killings through, throughout the film. So there really wasn't a huge plot to the film. It was very simplistic and it was a subtle humor, which I really liked about it. So I tried to kind of take those elements and incorporate it into a film that I could do that was somewhat similar to that and I think I came pretty close to it. I mean, it's not the same production, nowhere near that, you know, but I'm just saying I came close to trying to achieve the same idea, the same concept. Sure. Some of the criticism I did get was that they said the killings were all the same, which is true. They were all beheadings or whatever. Uh, I don't know if you want spoilers or not, because I don't have a problem with it. Or yeah, that's up to you. Movies.
1: It's your movie. It's okay. up to you.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, uh,
5: yeah, so that there were, you know, all beheadings in there. They were all similar. The problem was to, to create. Uh, I could not, you know, do anything where I had these elaborate killings because it becomes too expensive, especially when you're using actors where you have to have stunts involved and these really elaborate things become just too expensive. You have to have, you know, a stunt coordinator on set and I, I can't afford that. So that was really what it was. It was really a budget issue more than it was an, an aesthetic issue or an aesthetic idea. I-, I just couldn't do what they had done. And, you know, in those expensive of Price films, you know, flying in an airplane, you got rats coming down, you know, <laughs> on your, uh, over your shoulder and stuff so like that. No, we can't. I can't afford doing that. So I had to do something. Deeper. I just made the situations of work, you know, like they were doing something else. Either they were in a shower, they were in a basement, they were in a garage. So those are the only things I could do to change it up a bit. Mm-hmm. So that's how I had done that. I did all the makeup work in the movie, uh, except for one. And that was an old man's makeup. I didn't do that. Uh, that was done by a guy named Kevin Ward, who was on two seasons of Face Off. And he happens to live here in Denver, and we were good friends. And so he helped me that he was also in the movie. He he plays the, the mummy Prince in the film.
1: Right, and that's who I was going to bring up uh, when I was. And the funny thing uh, is, talking earlier.
5: So. Oh, yeah, he looks like Prince. He he looks like Prince. You know the the the, the musician. <laughs> and he it's a running joke with him all the time. As a matter of fact, they have made spoofs. Of that, and and when I approached him with this idea, I says I want you to play this this prince and the thing. Not even thinking, he starts laughing. He goes, I can't get away from this. <laughs> I go, Oh my god, I forgot. Yes, yeah, people think of you as prince, and I didn't think of it, you know. But but that's so. It's kind of a running joke. <laughs> so he gets to be. uh, the mummy prince, and he looks like Prince, yes. Uh, but he's actually a makeup artist, and he's an actor as well. So he did that old man's makeup for me uh, just because it would be way too much work. He act- And I can't do the foam latex appliances. I can do just, you know, where you lay over. I can actually create molds and do that, but I can't do a foam okay. latex. Takes a- you have to have, like, the facilities to do that. So he was able to do that for me. I- otherwise, I did all the other makeups for it. And um, I did the music in the film mm-hmm. as well, uh, which I did not. Plan on doing, I just said I had auditioned I think about four the people to do the music, and they were all good, they were all good musicians, but it was too contemporary uh what they were doing, and I thought oh, it's not going to work. I couldn't get him to play it like an older style of music uh it was all done you know in a very modern way where you have a lot of heavy percussion, you know a mm-hmm. uh, rumbling, and you know a lot of modern day stuff, and I just thought it's not going to work with this movie it just it's two different things. So I had to roll up my sleeves and I actually did it. I actually created the music uh, myself uh, using things that I remember, you know, as a kid, I liked a lot of the, uh, when, you know, when you watch some of the, or even Quincy Jones, some of the TV shows he's done, mm-hmm. you know, Ironside and stuff like that. You hear that kind of a uh, sound. I thought, okay, I can incorporate that. And I tried different things, but most of it I used Arabic scales for creating most of the music. So if you hear it, most of it is, is just a theme on those same Arabic scales over Mm -hmm. and over again. And that's how I was able to do that and uh, just made it full sound. The hardest part for me was the orchestration. So you can come up with a rhythm and, you know, some harmonies and and add those elements to it, but it's orchestrating, which is the most complicated, you know, for me. And that's probably what took the longest for me. And I actually enjoyed it. I I didn't, I, I created music before I did it for the first documentary. I didn't do it for the second documentary, but I did it for, for this one. And, uh, I I took my time and I knew how how important it was. Uh, I did all the special effects. Say one other thing too. There's no green screen in this movie at all. Zero, zero green screen. (laughs) I do not like green screen.
3: Okay, Uh, okay.
5: So most of it is in-camera effects, all of it. And it's all very simplistically done. I mean, you know, um, and there is some matte painting that I did uh, that I created in Photoshop. So it isn't really hands-on
1: painting, which I can do, but. I wasn't going to take that much time. It's easier just to create it in Photoshop and apply that. And then the special effects. So this sounds like it was really a, a guerrilla film project. I mean, you carried the load on a lot of different chores on set and then afterwards with the music as well. How long did it take you to shoot Rage of the Mummy? It took about two years to shoot it. Um,
5: okay. And I would say the principal shooting probably took about, I think it was a summer. What took longer was actually was me in the costume because I was the mummy. So we shot a lot of stuff where I did where I wasn't needed with the other actors you know, the other actor wasn't needed. We shot those pickups later on and I, and I would just do this in, in just sort of in piecemeal, you know, wherever I could do it, I mm-hmm. would shoot those scenes and then we, I would just put them together and it just looked like it was all shot, you know, <laughs> at the same time, but it wasn't, it was, some of them were shot a year later, you know? <laughs> so when he's looking up at the mummy, you know, and he's, and then the mummy's walking off then that's, you know, that's like a year later or
1: something. That's that, movie magic. Um, <laughs>
5: yeah. That's how it works. You know, so some of it was, uh, was, yeah, shot differently at different times. But yeah, yeah. And I created the costume as well, uh, which took forever, a lot of sewing. As a matter of fact, the funny thing was that my sewing machine died at the last stitch that I had to put together for the most part. Oh, no.
3: It
5: It was a funny thing, but I had just finished the costume and it was like the the, the turbine in there, I think, broke or something. And I was like, well, at least I got the last stitch in there. So it worked (laughs) out. Um, And we had to repair the, I had to repair the costume a few times through the production. And it just seemed to get more raggedy which looked better. To the, so you'll see different parts of the movie where it looks a little more pristine. And then other times where it's a little more. raggedy. <laughs> so and that's after like two years of wearing it. And I got so tired of wearing that costume because my associate producer, uh, Steve Engstrom, mm-hmm. uh, he was the one that helped me the most with the production part of it. So he was there for handling the boom, carrying, you know, some of the equipment. We, we both did that, but he was there to help me with a lot of that. I couldn't have done it without him, but he would always make fun of me because I would have to put on the, Eyeliner. I'd have to put eyeliner and, and blocking my whole eyes out because I'd have to put the mask over. Otherwise, you would see, you know, flesh tones, you know, coming through the mask. You know, <laughs> and you would know, always rub that stuff all over my face and tell me, "Yeah, you need some of your nose. You need it here." You know, laugh at me because I hated putting that stuff on. Um, I can't imagine someone like Lon Chaney having to put on that mummy costume. I know he hated it, you know, mm-hmm. with Jack Pierce. You know, you see pictures of him just like that that it was like a cat who just got out of the bathtub. He has that look on his face. Um and, I, and so I only had just the makeup. I just had to put something on that just wrapped around me, almost like pajamas or something, because there was just no way that I could wrap myself. It would take way too long, you know, hours of makeup work just to get that ready. So I had to do something that I could just slip on and slip off. So the hardest part was just getting the makeup on my eyes, because it just burned my eyes after I oh, had to take man. it off. And I just hated putting that stuff on. They would always laugh at me like, oh, time to put the costume on. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: but I had to do it. And it was one of those things. Now, did you play the mummy because of like scheduling, and you just want to make sure that when you needed to shoot something, the actor was available?
5: Yeah, just like most independents, that's what we do. We all do it because we can count on ourselves. So yeah, that's that's the way we do it. you know, and <laughs> and here was a funny thing because I'm not very tall. i'm five five, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a short guy. So when we were making this movie, I didn't really it didn't come to mind that I was short, you know, I, cause I, it's, I'm not bothered by my height. I'm not really aware of it too much too often. So when I'm fighting, these guys are like six feet tall. It was hilarious because it's just this midget mummy. <laughs> it, was, it was, it made me laugh. It was like that, that scene from, uh, what was it? Adam Costello meet the mummy when he goes, Huh, oh, look, a midget mummy. <laughs> you remember, Um, Remember that scene? Yeah, with, mm-hmm. <laughs> with, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of myself. I'm like, yeah, I'm a midget mummy. Watch them we get you. So it worked with the comedy; it was hilarious. But I did give myself like three inches height because I had it because well, the the guy who who plays uh, the mummy prince, he's a little taller, so I kind of wanted to match his height a little bit. So I gave myself three inches, and with three inches, I still wasn't tall enough, you know. But it, it was not easy walking around those platforms. It was uh, it was a little difficult, especially going through the sand.
1: Oh, I bet. Oh,
5: man, it was a bit of a workout. <laughs> it was a bit of a workout. And then I was carrying my tomb behind me, the sarcophagus. I was pulling that. And part of the reason that came about was because I, I love Nosferatu. And, uh, you know, Nosferatu tiptoes around the town, you know, with his which is coffin under his arm right? right and so i thought well i want to do that with this so i try to wrap my arm around it no it wasn't working but the sarcophagus was way too wide so i couldn't do that so i thought you know what i'm just going to wrap a rope around it and just drag it around <laughs> so that's kind of what i did so that's how that happened to be that idea that concept anyway came from that But so originally it came from that's didn't it work yeah it did, it did. Yeah. and some people really like that one a lot i've had people who don't who don't even really see horror films and they laugh at that scene and they go, where'd you get that idea? You know, I'm like, well, you don't know Nosferatu, do you? <laughs> they're like, no, <laughs> and I'm like, well, kind of came from that, you know, well, there's a lot of references to the film about other horror films. through the whole thing. I mean, then one of them Screep show, of course, cause that's how I did the transition mm-hmm. and the transitions of the, of the animation of the cartoons came about because I couldn't afford uh, an ambulance or a police car. So when we were shooting these scenes, like they're at a crime scene, there really wasn't much around and I couldn't show, you know, police cars in the front or anything. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to draw them out. I'm going to draw them and animate them just sort of like, uh, you know, Monty Python, you know, very minimal animation. <laughs> and so that's what I, I did. love that, that. That's how I got away. I with love it. that. <laughs> yeah. So I, so every, everywhere you see like these transitions because I couldn't afford <laughs> to shoot it. So I would draw a picture of it and you went back to the comic books So we transitioned every scene went like that. When you watch the movie, It doesn't look like there's that much drawing because I inked, I hand inked each one of those drawings, even the animation where the mummy chops things and stuff in the comic book. Those are all done one frame at a time. I colored them in, in, you know, in Photoshop, but I hand inked them and then I imported them, scanned them in uh, by hand, all of them. And and the mummy and some of those pages on the comic books, they're large. So you had to like put it in quarters and stuff. It was a lot of work. There was a lot of things. So, I have a lot of ink drawings, a ton, a stack. <laughs> but when you watch the movie, you don't, you don't think it was like, really, there was that many until you start counting them, every one of them. And you realize how much there really was mm-hmm. in there. And the same thing with the flashes where the guys electrocuting the mummy, if you remember sure. that scene, those are all hand drawn. Every one of those electric are, are being hand drawing each one of those uh, bolts of lightning all the way through. I don't remember how many frames I had. It was like, like 400 and some frames just for that. Wow. So that's why it was taking so long to get this movie done. It wasn't the production. The production went pretty, you know, pretty smooth. We did like, so we did in the summer and I just did the ones with me as the mummy when I could, we got those in, but most of it was in post-production. That's where all the time went It was all the post-production work that went into this because, and then there was another problem I had that the camera that I had, there was a faulty sensor on it. And what I was getting was little pinholes of red oh, no. through the entire film. I had it digitally go in there and remove every one of them. And some of it, you know, you have some camera motion. You know, we have a camera panning or something. Uh, and I had to get that too. it. was like a nightmare. Oh, my God, it was a nightmare. I didn't see it until you actually blow the screen up. Because when you're looking, you know, like you're editing software or you're editing screen. And if you've got something small, you don't notice it until so you actually blow up on a screen a little bit larger. And you go, oh, my God, I've got pinholes
3: everywhere.
5: <laughs> and you've got to go back and you've got to fix them all. So there was that, just took forever. Then I created the sarcophagus. So I can talk about the tomb as well. I I did the interior of the tomb. I painted that. Um, I have a room that has like an angle on it and it goes into a walk-in closet. So that became the tomb. And if you get the DVD, uh, you'll see these behind the scene photos that I have. And so what I did is I just created a mural And it didn't take me as long as you would think. And it just because I think the drawings themselves lend themselves to being more primitive. Sure. So these weren't highly polished photographic stuff. So it didn't take me that long to do. And besides, this is is my background. So it was very easy for me to do. So I just stained it and I I aged it. Um, I put styrofoam around the edges to make it look a little bit like brick or something, something too. So I painted that whole thing. I had to create the sarcophagus and that was pretty much the same thing. I just, you know, had a, I used insulation board it's about three two inches I guess yeah two inches thick and I would use that in glue and I and I just carved it out of styrofoam and painted it and that's how we got every that's how I did it
1: (laughs) all of this stuff was all handmade and it took forever to make everything but you know that's what it takes to get it Well, I want to comment on what you just said there about how it was all handmade and a little rough around the edges with some of the paintings and all that. I think that's what makes Mm -hmm. Rage of the Mummy. And and listeners, if I haven't already made it clear, I really like the movie. I think that's what makes Rage of the Mummy kind of fit with this whole monster kid, classic monster vibe, is that it is all handmade. It is all touched by human hands. It wasn't something that was done optically or digitally or whatever later. It was all done by a guy apparently painting up his room to make it look like a tomb. And that's mm-hmm. that's just cool to know that you could actually walk into that set and, and see these things and not worry about whether or not they're going to put them in later in post. It just gives it a sense of reality that yeah. I feel like a movie like this needs because, I mean, there are, there are some moments that feel a little unreal, but the, the reality moments kind of anchor it and make it, just fun ride. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and it was fun to
5: make. I mean, don't get me wrong; it was hard work. You know, I, I still even today I put in twelve, fourteen hour days. You know, and people don't believe it till they actually sit and watch me do this, and they're like, "Oh man, I would never do this." But you know, you have to kind of be a little bit of a madman. You know, or eventually I turn you into one. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I'm just so dedicated to doing it. I'm just, you know, I just love working with my hands, and I like doing this kind of stuff. And I, I, I just didn't want to do. I, I have a lot of you know friends, and they do great work. But it's all CGI. I mean, everything we doing is green screen. They get people in costumes, you know, many of them from cosplay and stuff. And, you know, and they do stuff in front of – they do all this action in front of a green screen, and then they go and fill it in later. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's kind of the new vernacular now in, in film, cinema. This is what people are – this is what kids are, you know, like and enjoy. I'm still kind of old school. I want to do everything by hand. I want to be hands-on. I want to see whatever I can do uh, in front of the camera. Create that there and, and do it that way. For me, it feels sure. more real. To me, uh, even if it does look fake and everything, it just feels more real to me. Uh, and I and I really like the colors too. That was another thing I pushed. so the lighting was really important. Uh, I I do a lot of lighting for people around here, and a lot of them like they like just like a flat look, you know, which I can do. You know, we just put the lights up, and it looks like a newsroom. <laughs> um, and uh, for me, that's uninteresting, you know, it's flat, uninteresting lighting. And and you see that a lot of times because of time. That's also another factor. Uh, when you shoot running, gun it, you know, with a lot of these independents, because they just don't have the time to sit around and sculpt light mm-hmm. and do that. But I was able to do that because I had the freedom in, in some locations. I got the time. So I bring in my old mold Richardson lighting, which I have, and I would sculpt the light. You know, I'd, I'd flag it off a certain way and I would create this this depth up uh, to the whole look. And that's why it looks the way it does. And then I just saturated the color because I just love hammer films, And that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to emulate that. I don't have the equipment they have or the studios they have, but I'm doing the best I can with it and try to get it as close, you know, as mm-hmm. I can. I don't like films that have been desaturated, you know, that kind of color grading that they add now, you know, where it's kind of green or it's kind of uh, uh bleached, you know, that kind of a look where it's bloomed. Um I, I don't really, I'm not into that. I kind of like the old fashioned Kodachrome, chrome, sure. you know, <laughs> saturated colors, and in depth, and in you know, like film noir, mm-hmm. is really what I was going mm-hmm. for. Um, and and part of the production didn't have that because I wasn't able to figure out um, the camera at that point. Uh, so half the production doesn't have that gorgeous lighting that I'd had halfway through. But overall, I think I still I was able to kind of pull it off.
1: No, I do like the lighting in it, and and I do like the way you said sculpt the lights. I mean, that's a great way to put it because you do sculpt part of the the environment yeah. by by placing the light certain ways. And there are moments, especially in the tomb, that mm-hmm. feel very uh, like you said the the colors are really pushed forward. It certainly feels like something I could have seen Hammer doing. You know, in terms of you know, let's throw Chris Lee in a mummy suit and have him wander around in there. It would be it would be right at home. It would work. Yeah, yeah, I just I just don't have quite
5: those sets. Sure, but it's it's going through the same kind of uh, feel, you know. And and we would always splash blue in the background somewhere. Like if we were outdoors, I would always try to take you know because I I take like my one K light and I'd put a, a blue gel on it, and we'd splash the whole end of the of the house in blue or stuff or 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 fence or wherever. I always try to keep the consistency of the of the artistic production going through throughout, wow. which was a very hard thing to do. You know, it's hard to keep that consistency because you have to think all the time on your feet half the time. You know, you're always you got people asking, well, does the green one look better on me or the red one? You're like, just pick one. (laughs) (laughs) Try to get your camera settings right, you know, and, and you're being distracted. And now you realize that you put your shutter speed at 70 or at 80. And it should be back at 50 because you're shooting at 24 because somebody asked you a question. <laughs> Everybody just shut up. Let me <laughs> this right then you can ask. But this is what goes on, you know, on on set. You know, you, you, you mess things up all the time because... You can't handle all the jobs, you know, you got to be a director, you got to be uh, a technician, you've got to be a clothes designer, you got to look at the lighting, because I do the light. So I try to do it all on the set, I'm trying to control too many mm. things. Um, and it's hard to find people that actually have knowledge of all those things. Like, you can get a lot of people that want to help you on production. They go, I can help you, I can help you. And like, okay, what can you do? Now? Well, I can, I can hold a boom. It's like I can move stuff, th- I can move stuff around and it's like, well, that's not really what I need. What I need is a unit production manager. Do you know how to do that? <laughs> it's like, no, what is that? You know, yeah. so those are the things that can really help you out of step, but you just don't have the money for that, you know? So you have to do it all yourself and you're oh, you're gonna mess things up somewhere on the line. So you fix it in post, you know, or, <laughs> And do the best you can with it. You know, you just juggle everything, and and people don't realize how hard it is. And so you actually do it, and you realize that it's just not that simple.
1: I think <laughs> so you're preaching to the choir here. Take after yeah, take. <laughs>
5: yeah. I know you know this. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> take after take. Oh, something fell down in the background. Okay, there was a dog barking now. Oh, somebody blew their line. Yep. Okay. Well, that lighting's coming in. We're getting uh-huh. a lens flare. It just goes yep. on and it goes on. <laughs> And then, and then the people that you're renting that, you know, are getting the place from, are you guys done yet? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, and then you got two-hour cleanup, you know, it's like, okay, are you guys out of here? Okay, just get your stuff out, you know, and it's like, well, it's going to take us two hours to wrap these cords. We've got to pull these lights down. We've got to take, oh, by the time you get out in your car, you're just like dead, you know, and, and driving
1: <laughs> home. And, and
5: <laughs> but you know what I mean. So you, you've gone through mm-hmm. this. So. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think of a lot of the listeners there too, yeah.
5: But nobody cares about this. <laughs> the only care... Audiences only care what's on the screen. They don't care about your excuses. They don't care. Oh, I wasn't feeling good that day. No, Mm -hmm. they only care about the results. That's all they care. And I can understand that. I'm the same way. I don't want to hear about your crybaby stuff. Okay, we just want to know what's (laughs) on the screen. That's all that counts, right? (laughs) Because audiences 50 years from now are not going to care. That you weren't feeling good that day. They don't care. They just know what they see on the screen. So you got to push yourself, no matter how hard, just to make the best you can out of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. And it's funny
1: sometimes, you know, because oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> well, with Rachel the Mummy, you're um, self distributing. It looks like is that right? Yeah. Yes, I am. And you can get it through Amazon Prime. It's streaming now, so people can get it that way. It's on DVD. Yeah. It is. easy to get your hands on. I mean, listeners, you've got no excuse. <laughs> it is out there. It is. But a lot of people, like I said, they do like the film and all that. But I
5: am going to proceed with another film, and I am writing that already. Okay. So we are going to do it, but we're going to do it economically. And when I say we, I mean me. <laughs> it's going to be an anthology film because it's the most economical way oh. to make a film. And I love anthology films. anyway. Okay. The House to Drip Blood, yeah, The Monster Club, is that what it's called? Yes. I love that movie. <laughs> The
1: Monster Club. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> it's along those
5: lines. I'm going to do something along that line. What I have in this, let me just look, I'm going to pull my, because I, I write everything down on um, index cards, which a lot of writers do. So I like to use the blank index cards, and I write my outlines. Uh, that's how I start all my scripts. So I have a werewolf movie, and I have a vampire movie, and I have a ghoul movie, which it could, uh, could be a zombie, a witch movie, and I have a creature movie. The wraparound is really kind of true. Or there's a ghost story, so that'll be the wraparound. So it'll be five stories with a wraparound. Uh, I figure I can do, I have actors I can round up, 15 pages for, to 10 pages on each or 20 pages, whatever it requires. Those are easy to find actors to do that. Cause it doesn't require that much time because if you're going to do a movie that's going to take you two, three years to, to work on, you're going to lose these people if you're going to have one full feature. So it's easier to knock out basically a short with the 10, 15 page thing and, and they're done. They're done. Like within a week, you're you're done, you're wrapped with that, with that story. And uh, and then move on to the next one. So that that's how I'm going to do it just because I think that uh, I can, you know, accumulate some money to to shoot and then when I can get some more money I can shoot the next one that's just the only way I can I can do it you know and like again unless someone's going to drop a lot of money in my lap and I can <laughs> and then do it that way <laughs> but yeah so I'm gonna I'm gonna create um, an anthology film uh, for the next for my next one
1: well and anthologies are pretty popular too so that that's a good comment now what's going on with cosmic creatures is it still something that may happen down the line or
5: yeah. I have a great script for that, and um, it's just sitting there because I need about a hundred grand for that movie to get it done right. You know, uh, and that's not much. I mean, compared to you know, for independence, you know, that, that's nothing. But I just don't have that money. So if I can get a hundred grand for that film, I'll do it. But I would love, I still have the costume. The costume looks great. And I and it's not going to hold up for too much longer. So I'm thinking of maybe putting it in my anthology film because mm-hmm. the, the latex starts to, to get uh, stiff after a while and start to break down right and so i mean it still works it's still doing okay i mean it's not you know it's not falling apart or anything it just it doesn't look like you know like rick baker's the werewolf of london thing you know i've seen that actually at bob burns house that you know that things fall oh my god it looks like it looks like somebody pulled out a stuffed couch you know those couches oh no really falling apart yeah it doesn't yeah it's it, it needs repair i think he made another one for his gallery so, but i saw the one that bob burns owns which he owns the original one and uh, it's just cool to see it, I mean, because you're seeing the original one from the movie, that's sure. so nice. which, you know, I you know, Bob Burns, right?
1: Oh, yeah, I know. Well, I've never met him, but I know who you're talking. I think our listeners know, but oh, okay, yeah. I've never met him. I'd love to. But yeah.
5: Yeah, he's got the alien stuff. He's got everything. He's got all these movie props from everything. It's just so fun to go over there and actually see the stuff in the flesh, you know. But anyway, so the other, yeah, the, the cosmic creature, he's still around. He's still, he, I still see him and he's in the backstories here, but I see him every day <laughs> and uh, I got to use him. I got to use him. So at some point, but I, I really have him for this movie and uh, I would like to get it done, but it's just going to cost me too much money to, to get that done. So I'm just going to go with the anthology right now. Gotcha. It'll be good. It's going to have a lot of meat on it. There's going to be a lot of drama and it's going to be, you know, uh, a lot to see for people. I think it. You know, you only get better. You know, as you go. Again, I'm new to this. I, I mean, I've done documentary and I, and I know how to do documentaries,
3: mm-hmm. uh, and
5: that's a whole different ball of wax compared to doing narratives. And narratives is, is very complicated. And, uh, I'm not saying documentaries aren't. I guess it depends on what kind of documentaries you're doing. But for the kind I did, these were sit down interviews. You know, that's basically what I did with those. And you do a lot of research, of course, because you have to research the, you know, all these people, what they've done, and, and you got to put it in there and make some sense out of it. But when it comes to, to narrative, it's a whole different thing. You know, you're dealing with, with, with a lot of people in the room. Um, you, you have a lot of writing to do. There's a lot of lighting that you have to deal with. And uh, company moves, you know, from one place to another. You got to feed the crew. There's just so many elements, so many a uh, production duty that have to be done. And and those are things that I was learning. And that's why I took a simple story like the Dr. Fives was to just a simple revenge story. Because I knew I wouldn't have time to hold the actors' hands and try to get them through a scene. Say, well I knew I need it to be more like this or you know what I mean? I just assumed that they they knew their lines, they knew their blocking and we just kind of we improved some of it and, and it worked really well. But I didn't write anything too far away from who they were. These these characters of most of these people they're they're pretty much kind of like that so they didn't really try to act too far outside of who they were
3: mm-hmm.
5: um, and that's true i think of most actors even in hollywood you know you're you're paying for quality of these people because they're really not much different than that there's a few people like you know watch tiger who's a nut that guy can play anything i mean you know his range is like oh, all over the map or dustin hoffman's another one you know sure or they're amazing because they've got such talent but that's a small percentage of people that have that kind of talent to do that, so I kind of wrote these stories based on people I had worked with and I knew who they were, and I thought, yeah, you know, what they they can they can play that part because that's kind of close to who they are. So they improved some of this, and and they're good actors. I, I thought the actors and the casting was really good in, the, in this film. I thought they did pretty well. I was pretty happy with that. I didn't think there was anybody that really gave me a poor performance. They were all really good. So that was one thing that I thought worked. But um, do you have any other
1: questions? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I think we've pretty much tackled it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't have to ask many questions at all. It's like you were kind of reading my mind with a lot of what oh, was I, was I wanted I? to talk about. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're...
5: <laughs> I just don't know if I covered everything. Cause I, you know, I get off the phone, I'm like,
1: oh, I should have said that. Oh, I should have said that. or I should have said that.
5: Or
3: I don't
1: know what. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. Here's the thing. I don't want to wait almost... What, is it? what did we say, four or five years to have you on the show again. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, so let's plan on having you on at some point uh, down the line and maybe talk about, I don't know, you, you said you like Dr. Fives. We could talk about Fives yeah. a little bit. Yeah. But we can talk about some of those Hammer Mummy movies. We'll just have you back on at some point. I think it'd be a lot of fun to, to catch up and and maybe see how okay. Bridge of the Mummy does for you. I, I think listeners should check it out. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes, of course. And, and we'll go from there. I've learned a lot of things. Doing
5: this first film, and I know that I'm going to be so much more prepared for the second one that I'm going to be doing now. Um, I'll I'll really understand um, how to really approach this, and I'll feel more confident. And I think I'm going to end up making a much better story. Uh, I mean, I like you know *Rage of the Machine*. Don't get me wrong, I like it. But it's my first. This next one is going to be even better. As Johnny Depp said in *Ed Wood*, you know, like my first one, and he said, "Well, my next one's going to be better." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: of the Mummy has a Facebook page. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes as well as the aforementioned link to where you can go buy it on Amazon. And if you buy it through that Amazon link in the show notes, we get a little bit of a kickback on that because we're part of the affiliate program over there. Anyway, big thanks to Dennis for being part of the show. And I meant it, man. We are not going to wait another, well, 300 plus episodes to get you back on the show. You're a mummy aficionado. As am I. I'm sure we can find plenty to talk about the next time we have you on Monster Kid Radio. Thanks again, Dennis. You're the man, and good luck with Rage of the Mummy.
2: Blood of the ever living, the ever evil. Blood from the mummy's tomb. From the dead, dead past come powers too terrifying, too strange to be believed.
0: You know who I am. Yes. And you're afraid, aren't you?
2: Who is she, wearing the mummy's face? Is she one of us, enjoying our kind of life, or is she the ever living, the ever evil? <coughs> from The Mummy's Tomb. Rated PG. Horror. Horror. No! Horror. Stop it! Horror. (laughs) The Masters of Horror present The Masterpieces of Screen Horror from 20th Century Fox, Frankenstein Created Woman, and The Mummy's Shroud. Frankenstein. Now he has created his most diabolical horror. The ultimate in evil a beautiful woman with the soul of the devil. Then, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the mummy shroud. The ultimate in evil. The absolute in terror. From the Shock Masters. Together in the same double shock show. Frankenstein created woman and the mummy shroud in Griffin. Color. I'm Thomas DJ, top professional.
6: I'm Scott McGregor, talented amateur. And we'd like to invite you to join us for our journey through every adventure of The Avengers.
1: No, not that Avengers. You won't find any tights, magic hammers, or fancy shields here
6: find some supervillains and some hot women in tight leather so there is that
1: and champagne oh yeah lots of champagne with umbrella charm and bowler that other avengers podcast covering the seminal spy series that lasted from 1961 to 1969 on an episode by episode basis
6: join us as we explore the television series that helps shape pop culture i mean an icon out of diana Rick, honor blackman and patrick d
7: with umbrella charm and bowler that
6: Other Avengers podcast coming straight towards you every month, only on the Two True Freaks Podcast Network.
7: Hey, Derek and Monster Kid Radio, this is Mike in Maryland, aka Dr. Morbius 79, on Instagram, Letterboxd, and Twitter. Just wanted to send in a voicemail, I missed out on the uh, 400th episode, but. Just want to say that uh, I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller. I've enjoyed the show since it started uh, years ago and really uh, something to look forward to every week on uh, Thursday mornings uh, for my commute into work. And I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciate the show and really uh, it's brought the movies to my attention that I probably would never have watched otherwise. The Kay Kaiser film with, uh, was it Peter Lorre, Karloff, and Lugosi, uh, You'll Find Out, which was one of my favorite first-time watches this past year uh, was something I probably never would have stumbled upon without monster kid radio. Uh, also, you know, j- getting into dark shadows here recently, uh, really just listening to folks talk about it on the show. So just wanted to thank you and, uh, wish you well in the new year. And here's to another 400 episodes and beyond. Thanks.
1: So I'm pretty sure that I have not played that voicemail on the show before. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm a little behind on a lot of it. Uh, but, If I have, it's great to hear from you again. If not, I'm glad you called in, man. It's awesome to hear from somebody who's been with the show for so long.
4: You're probably glad he called in either way. Maybe you're
1: so glad you played it twice. (laughs) This is possible. This is very possible. Yes. Anyway, um... You'll Find Out is a wonderful film. I know a lot of aficionados of all things Karloff and Lugosi aren't really a big fan of that film, or at least don't put it very high on the list of some of their better collaborations, but I adore it. Mm. It's so much fun, and I keep meaning to go and watch more of the Kay Kaiser films. I just haven't done that yet, but I I really want to because I'm kind of fascinated by the guy obviously not fascinated enough to you know make it a priority to watch his movies so maybe different word
4: moderately interested in the guy uh
1: anyway um just k kaiser seems cool i think there's like eight nine movies uh not none of them are as monster ish as this one is but i should go back and watch them anyway i'm glad you liked it man and it's awesome to hear from you so thank you for calling in And thank you for Brenda joining the show. It's been a little while. You want to say some more so people remember what you sound like?
4: Oh, hello. (laughs) This is what I sound like. I'm wearing a lavalier mic. Yes. For some reason, it has made me nervous
1: why you don't don't know
4: like i'm on tv or something it's like it's i can't even see it
1: (laughs) you don't have to hold uh anything in your hand this time
4: i know it makes me so nervous when we do that too because i always move too much and then you're like you move the mic too much then it's all i'm sorry
1: i bet that sounded awesome in everybody's ears yes
4: (laughs) i'm i'm sure
1: Anyway, thank you for doing this. Uh, why fun. haven't you been on the show? I don't
4: know. Why haven't I? We were really busy for a while.
1: You were being punished.
4: What? <laughs> if so, I haven't learned anything from it.
1: <laughs> you know what you did. Oh. No. Wait. Uh, it's just things have been kind of crazy. You know, it's there's that period between Christmas and New Year's where things just kind of, you lose control of everything. I
4: know. And that
1: seemed to push into almost the entire month of January for us. Yes.
4: Plus, it's rough weather for my joints.
1: Yeah. Uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, the weather's been kind of screwy. We actually had snow yesterday and we're expecting snow. more in a few days. Snow and air quotes. It was technically snow. Yes, it was stayed. For like half a day. Yes. And then it was like, I'm, I'm done.
4: There's supposed to be more coming. I get so excited when I see the snow.
1: <laughs> I feel really bad all of a sudden for any listeners who live where it, ha- it has been miserable
4: where it was like -50 wind chill.
1: That's that's some real like thing from another world type stuff. That's pretty rough. It's
4: a it's very Alaskan and I don't know, I'm sure Siberian, etc. but <laughs> when you live in a place that doesn't get that cold your buildings aren't designed to keep up with it. You're, you don't have the knowledge about. Don't get out of your car and walk if it doesn't. If it stops because
1: it's too cold, I mean, hopefully you do because if not, you're dead. But right. miserable. Yeah, it's it's been pretty. So I hope people are staying warm. And uh, yeah, like I said, watch the thing from another world. That's like the perfect monster movie set in a cold, desolate, snowy landscape. It's perfect.
4: Maybe they need to watch something warm.
1: Or watch something like The Day the Earth Caught Fire. Oh, That's, that's a really good one, too. Fuego. <laughs> Everywhere, Fuego. Oh, man. So, uh, have you done anything monstery? Have we done anything monstery since you've been on the show? I, I... Well, you got a lot of these things. <laughs> various listeners have sent me various things uh, Dracula. lately. Dracula. We have the, well, th- this we've had for a little while. I just haven't opened them up yet. Oh. We've got the Mego, or Mego, isn't it? Uh, retro Dracula from Target. We've got the Mego face of the screaming werewolf werewolf figure, which really we all know is just a stand-in for the Wolfman, just didn't want to pay Universal the licensing fees. And uh, just the other day, Actually I think this is one we bought for ourselves, the Frankenstein Migo, and he's not been opened up yet, but I'll have all three of them up and on that shelf looking down at me as I record.
4: Didn't Dracula
1: commit suicide?
4: Did Dracula fall? did fall off the shelf yes, when nobody was around.
1: Well, we'll have to have a talk with Dracula. We might have to ready, ready? We might have to stake him into place, ah uh? mm. uh-huh, mm. <laughs> Mm. this is where you laugh because I'm (laughs) funny (laughs) actually you know this is a good time to say this Uh, big thanks to all the listeners who sent us either Christmas cards or or Christmas gifts or gifts around this time of year like Diana in New Jersey who sent me that binder full of the Universal Monster trading cards those are so cool and here's what I love about it you know what can I reach it here I'm I'm gonna go get (gasps) it entertain everybody you're
4: moving the microphone
1: keep talking riff for a little bit
4: oh no they're hearing all the sounds Stretch further. What are you doing? How have you made this so complicated?
1: (laughs) Best podcasting ever. (laughs) This is how I got that Rondo award a few years ago. Sure. (laughs) All right. So, Diana from New Jersey sent me this cool binder full of trading cards. It's the Universal Monsters of the Silver Screen series. Come on. What I like about this is the back of every card has the the title of what movie the image came from. So you have the basics, you know, the ones that we all know, Dracula, Frankenstein, Hunchback of Notre Dame. But what I really appreciate is that you'll see some on here that aren't your traditional Universal monster movies, at least the ones that Universal doesn't promote. Like, oh, wow, I don't even know what that is. Is that a serial? Smoking Guns? I don't know, but we got The Black Cat in here, we got Tower of London, Night Key, which is a really cool Boris Karloff film. There's just some really neat movies in here represented that you don't normally see represented. The Man Who Reclaimed His Head, I don't even know what that is. Hey, movie ideas. Yeah, I mean, this is great. That's amazing. So So, she just slowly but surely collected those for you? I'm not sure where they came from. I appreciate that they're here now. Yes. (laughs) And then uh, just, it was yesterday, I got a package from Japan. Oh. There he is right there. Uh, It's a King Joe figure. Now, here's the thing about getting things from Amazon. Sometimes they don't include a note saying who it's from. And this came from Amazon Japan. So even if there was a note, I wouldn't have been able to read it. This is a vinyl figure of King Joe, who is a monster from the Ultraman series. Um, Kind of a cool looking little monster, I think. He's a little awkward looking and and all, but he's awesome. He looks like if you have the right kind of screws, you can
4: unscrew his hips (laughs) and his neck. You have to have the right ratchet for his neck, though.
1: The kaiju in the Ultraman movies? You have to remember, they were making a new kaiju monster every single week. So I think sometimes they just took a bodysuit and glued whatever they had around the house. <laughs> Probably not that basic. We are talking about Eiji Tsuburaya, who was a genius. But still, every week he got a new rubber-suited monster. So King Joe holds up, though. I like King Joe. Red King's my favorite. And I have one of him already. He's not red. Uh, but now I've got a King Joe, which is cool. And also with this King Joe book was a I'm sorry. The King Joe figure was a book that I think is either about Ultraman or Ultra Q. Yeah. It's all in Japanese. There are no pictures in it. Have you tried your Google Translate? I'm going to. I just haven't done it yet. But whoever sent that to me, thank you. It's awesome. Uh, Paul sent me the face of the screaming werewolf figure, yeah. which was awesome. Just, I, I appreciate it. You know, Steve has sent me stuff. Over the, just thank you. I, I just want to say thanks to everybody. And I'll say it again in November when we do a Thanksgiving episode. How about that?
4: Well, maybe people don't send you things so that you give them shout outs. I just don't know that
1: people want to listen. I just want people to know that I appreciate it. I know. You know? I know. You're a good person. So I mentioned the rondos a second ago. Okay. as of this recording they are still I believe accepting suggestions for the official nominations or the nominees a ballot mm-hmm. and you can go over to rondoaward.com and Get into the forum there and post your recommendations. Or you can email David Colton directly at taraco at AOL.com. That's T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. And let them know who you would like to see on the ballot for, say, like, best website, best independent movie, best interview, best magazine. There is a multimedia podcast category. But what I'm I'm pushing for, and I've mentioned this on the show before, there is are nominations on the ballot every year for like monster kid hall of fame oh and there's usually a handful a few that get inducted every year and i recommended that my friend and fellow podcaster and just amazing dude kyle yount
4: oh yeah be added
1: to the hall of fame and i already said this once before i'm going to say it again kyle this is his 10th year doing the kaiju cast And it's coming to an end at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's bringing it to a close. He's going to keep doing Kaiju Cast style stuff, but the podcast itself, as it is right now, will be coming to an end. But Kyle isn't just a podcaster. He made a documentary about Godzilla, uh, which was fantastic. It's available for free on YouTube, so go check that out. It was Rondo Award nominated. Feature length. So cool. He also organizes trips for fans to go to Japan and check out kaiju locations and visit other kaiju enthusiasts, including collectors and, and makers and just, it's amazing. All the work that he puts into making kaiju fandom accessible to everybody. It's just fantastic. So if you haven't already done so, maybe consider emailing David and say, Hey, how about Kyle? out for hall, you know, hall of fame. So I'm just, just saying, he doesn't know that I'm doing this unless he's listened to the show because mm. I haven't really blabbed a lot of it, about it on Facebook outside mm. to a few people. Anyway, so that's happening. Um, yeah. you want to We got one email here. All right. Hey, Derek. Hey. <laughs> I'm
4: just wrapping up the Lovecraftian Film Festival episode. Does it say Lovecraftian or Lovecraft? It says Lovecraftian.
1: Now I feel like a jerk.
4: You are. Okay. I'm <laughs> just kidding. So he's just Wrapping up the Lovecraftian Film Festival episode and I just wanted to say that the panels were fun and informative. Weird fiction is something I'm not very well versed in, but would like to get more into, and I find these episodes from the film festival gave some great guidance as to where to get started. When you guys started talking about Gorgo, and subsequently other kaiju movies, I became curious to know if you had seen the new controversial Godzilla anime. In particular, the third part, Planet Eater. While other Godzilla and kaiju movies have implied cosmic horror elements, this is the first to basically come right out and declare itself a cosmic horror work. In Planet Eater, without spoiling anything major, this version of King Ghidra, Ghidorah?
1: Sure. I've heard it actually pronounced a couple different ways. Ghidra, Ghidorah.
4: Well, I've heard Ghidra, but okay, is a cosmic dragon that exists in a void outside of our comprehension of time and space and can only be truly comprehended by an alien death cult that worships him. Through Ghidorah, the movie explores themes about life, death, and humanity's role in the universe. The trilogy is quite divisive as it's not a knockdown kaiju rumble, but it's world-building and the mythos it weaves, particularly in Part 3, which I think you could enjoy without having seen the first two, seems right up your cosmic horror alley. And if you have seen it, I'm curious to know your thoughts on it. Also, if you could recommend a weird fiction movie that falls in the MKR wheelhouse for a newbie, what would it be? Bonus points if it has luchadors. (laughs) Anyway, fine work on another fun episode. So is Ghidra... Who's it from? Ghidorah? Oh, oh, I, I decided not to sign off. Chris.
1: Chris C., right? Oh, it doesn't say that. I believe it's Chris C., um... And he's somebody that at one point I talked about getting on the show to talk about a particular kaiju movie that's a particular favorite of mine. And you never did? And I never did, but I'm saying it now to remind myself and to put myself on the spot. I'd love to have him on to talk about that particular kaiju movie. Anyway, what were you about to say? Is this
4: the Ghidra that you talk about and it's spelled Ghidorah?
1: So we've got that ornament, the the three-headed dragon ornament, right? Okay. That's King Ghidra or Ghidorah. Okay, so I am, okay. Yeah, it is that guy, and depending on which release, the Japanese or the American, uh, it might be pronounced different ways. Mm. I believe here in America it was Ghidra. G h uh, i d r a h, uh, I believe. I'd have to go back and double check. But yeah, anyway, we're going to get into some nerdery here. So this
4: part three actually sounds very Lovecraftian.
1: It does. So here's the thing about the Godzilla anime, and I'm just going to flat out say it here. It's, it's hard for me to get into a kaiju story that's not a kaiju movie. This is a thing with me. I'm not saying that they're bad. And I have read kaiju novels and kaiju comics. And, you know, I enjoy them. But a, for me, a lot of the appeal is knowing that there's a dude in the suit. Oh. Which is why I love Ultraman so much. Oh. But, like I said, I've read some novels like uh, Steve Sullivan's Kaiju Attack. Or um, I've read some comics as well that have kaiju elements. Timothy Price's works are great. But I haven't really given the animes a shot. And the other reason is because I've never really been a big fan of anime, even though I've been desperately curious for years now about it. Yeah, because anime is like the last animated field, animation field, where things are still hand-drawn. You know, everything that Disney's putting out now, or Warner and the big guys, it's all CGI, which is fine. But there's just something about the the texture of a hand-drawn cartoon or animated story that just feels right. And I've heard people talk about the Godzilla stuff. I have heard it's divisive, but it's interesting that the third one's got this cosmic element. Right. Is that what's divisive about it? No, I I don't know what's divisive about it, because I have intentionally not really gotten too into the reviews. I just know that some people haven't liked it very much, because eventually I plan on watching them, maybe. Well, this third one sounds great. Honestly. It does feel like or it sounds like it's it's got this Lovecraftian feel where our place in the universe is well not the center, we are but right. a speck in the cosmos, which, which
4: is reality.
1: very very uh, very Lovecraft worldview.
4: We really matter not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we matter in our individual roles.
1: Right, in the grand scheme of things, we are just little specks here. There are there are there are so many other things out there. And Lovecraft's, you know, point of view with a lot of his stuff is that You know, if you think about the ant that you see on the sidewalk, it's not thinking about us. It's not thinking about anything other than what's in front of it. But we can see there is such a huge world around this Mm -hmm. ant. And this ant is just, well, just an ant and everything. That is what we are to the universe.
4: I find it kind of comforting because while we matter within our web and the world we build, Mm
1: -hmm.
4: in the grand scheme of things, that crappy thing that happened at work or that you know, terrible pressure you're under is is but not. It's a man-made, created stress and pressure that really, in the universe, doesn't
1: matter. Well, I'd appreciate if you wouldn't put me under so much pressure so I wouldn't feel that way.
4: Why do you feel that way?
1: Because you put me under pressure.
4: Oh, don't worry. In the grand scheme of things, it matters not.
1: (laughs) I have thought that there are some Cthulhu-esque Lovecraftianesque themes in some of the Godzilla films mm. uh, and, and certainly in some of the Ultraman. There's some there too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'll give the anime a shot. I mean, I'd, well, I'd like yes. to.
4: Well, the thing is that one of the things I don't like about Luchador and a lot of Kaiju is it is just about the big fights and the effects and the bing-bang-boom. And that to me isn't substance. That's not the most interesting part of a movie to me. People having to use physical intervention to solve the problems. Um, And this,
1: if it's world building. Yeah, most of the world's problems should actually be solved by like dance battles and stuff. Yes, exactly. That's really what it should be. (laughs) To be fair, the best kaiju movies. And I used to say this about the zombie stuff when we were doing the zombie podcast. The best kaiju stories or movies are movies that contain stories that aren't necessarily about the kaiju. Yes. The best stories are the ones that have the people element. And it's their stories yes. that are interrupted yes. by the kaiju. It's one of the reasons why I like Shin Godzilla so much. Is And, and that's not a guy in a suit, that's CGI. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, I felt like the story of the people with Shin Godzilla and what it was trying to say, apart from Godzilla, was fascinating right the luchador stuff well i mean it's a different bag but i still love those two (laughs) (laughs) i can't think of a luchador film that's like a a weird fiction style film Mm. although i suppose kind of sort of by maybe broad definition anytime the luchadors went up against a monster of some sort maybe that can kind of slip into that weird weird fiction wheelhouse a little bit maybe Uh, some of the stuff that we or one of the movies we talked about last year for lucha de mayo Mayo? Mayo. It was just Mayo. It's Mayo. So last June. What
4: no, it was May. <laughs> it's May, but is it Mayo like the spread?
1: I don't remember what we did. We went this whole thing happened last year.
4: <laughs> We're gonna do it again, year.
1: We're going to. So last May we did one with Santo versus the Blob. I think that one could probably slip into the weird fiction kind mm-hmm. of arena. Mm-hmm. Non-luchador Genre films in the Monster Kid radio wheelhouse. I can think of that two off the top of my head. That are weird fiction. I would say The Shuttered Room. And it's got some Lovecraftian elements. The theme is not Lovecraftian. The story is not Lovecraftian, but it's got the elements. And that's because it was based on a story written by August Derleth, who was a Lovecraftian uh, author and actually was responsible for making sure Lovecraft's work became known outside of Lovecraft's lifetime. Founded Arkham House Publishing and all this other stuff. Uh, granted he did do some things of the Cthulhu mythos that Lovecraft probably wouldn't have been too keen on, but the shuttered room, I'd recommend it also because Oliver reads in it and that man can do no wrong. He plays a great character in that. But the other film would be a movie that I saw for the first time last year with Dominique and Chris. And that's the mask,
4: not the Jim Carrey
1: mask, not the Jim Carrey movie <laughs> and not the one with, um, share and that other guy who's Bridget Bonda's okay. husband. Um, Eric Stoltz, it's not him either. Anyway, uh, The Mask, which is a Canadian supernatural monster movie, has a lot of things in it that you could maybe compare to The King in Yellow, which is an R.W. Chambers story, which Lovecraft drew inspiration from, and it definitely feels like it's part of that weird fiction tradition. So I would recommend those two. The Shuttered Room, a little bit, but definitely The Mask. I think you would like the mask. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating story. And I think
4: I might like this anime. Yeah, I mean, we should definitely check that stuff out, too. We should also watch Unico in the Island of Magic.
1: Which is not weird fiction one bit.
4: No, it's anime. Well.
1: You know, technically it is. It is. Technically it is. and it's someday first
4: anime I ever found, and for some reason in Alaska, they played it over and over on TV, and I loved it. <laughs>
1: Unico and the Island of Magic. What was the other one that we found? There was another Unico movie, but it wasn't as good.
4: Right, but I wonder if probably Unico and the Island of Magic wouldn't be as good either, except that it has the nostalgia.
1: Yes. You know, that speaks, I mean, that's a lot.
4: The nostalgia part of it is a lot of it. They have the headphones with the tweeter and the woofer, (laughs) and it's a bird and a frog, a bullfrog. (laughs) Remember?
1: Someday we'll talk about Unico, honey. We, We will. Okay. Okay. Someday. so yeah you know listeners if you've got any ideas about other movies that have that weird fiction tradition uh, that would be part of the MKR wheelhouse I'd love to hear it I'd love to hear about them um, you might find some in like some of the 60s Italian films maybe something like Black Sunday might have something in it you might you might find that And it's got Barbara Steele which is cool anyway but yeah if listeners have any other ideas you can either talk about it on the Facebook page or maybe call in or write in and we'll include it in a future episode I think this is I think we're caught up on feedback at this okay. point.
4: And you found the baby in a burlap sack movie.
1: <laughs> yes, I did. No, you didn't find it. Several several listeners called in, wrote in, posted on Facebook that the baby in the burlap sack scene in a Dracula movie came from two sources. One was a PBS version of Dracula. I talked about this previously. It was a PBS version of Dracula from the 70s, starring Louis Jordan as Dracula, which I've never seen, but I'd like to. And then somebody else also said the Count Dracula film by Jess Franco from, I believe, 1970, starring Christopher Lee, also has this scene. I've not seen that one either, despite the fact that I've had it in my Blu-ray collection for a few years, because my mother gave it to me for Christmas one year. And Did yeah. you
4: just talk so fast that you ran out of breath? No. Yeah.
1: Listen, I got plenty of breath. Uh Uh-huh. Anyway. So, yeah, baby in a burlap sack. Bloody baby in a burlap sack. That's right. Tossed to the brides. Is there a B B word for, like, tossing something? Bunting? Bunting is not bunting. That's true. um, Bunting? Bloody baby burlap sack bunting to the brides. Bunting is, like, decor. No. (laughs) Well, to be fair... They might like that, too. (laughs) (laughs) Ghidra. The three-headed
2: monster battles Godzilla. Mothra and Rodan for the world. All new, all never to be forgotten. See Geedra, the three-headed monster. Put the mask on now. Put the mask on now. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing wrong with the projection. But you can't share the shock until you have the miracle movie mask. At showings of this motion picture, each patron will receive his own miracle movie mask. Then, but let's watch the scene again. Then you will lift your mask as he lifts his. And you will look through it with him into the weirdest nightmare world that man has ever dreamed or the screen has ever dared show. The new realm of horror that can only be seen through... the mask. Here to tell you more is the supreme authority on all things weird. Initiate of the strange and mysterious. The world's greatest connoisseur and collector of masks. Mr. Jim
0: Moran. I have seen wonders. I've traveled to the remotest corners of the globe, to dead cities, through savage jungles, to the inner sanctums of esoteric cults, the temples of exotic rituals, to tombs and caverns and palaces. The result, the most comprehensive collection of masks in the world. Some are works of art. Some are astounding and horrifying. But nowhere in all my travels have I found a mask so absolutely remarkable as this mask, the Miracle Movie Fright Mask, the mask that you will be invited to put on when you see the motion picture called The Mask. This is the mask that will open your eyes to such things as man has never dared imagine the mask that will make you part of the sensations of the most staggering experience of your life but be warned the things that you will see when you put on this mask will surely take you to the very limits of your nerves and to the very boundary line of sanity
2: the door to the shuttered room.
0: I wouldn't take her into that old house, mister. Less than you want her to end up like this. The terror begins
2: on the road to the house with the shuttered room. There's
0: no hope for Susanna. If she's even one night in that house. Why, well, I, um, detect a threat there somewhere. Did you feel it? Feel what?
6: When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator.
2: The terror is a touch, a sound, a sense of someone watching that stains two people with the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and beyond.
0: Please, let me go. I have to see my husband.
2: What's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Ah.
1: Hey, Chief.
0: That sure is a lovely wife you got there.
1: And you know, I hear tell, she's just as pretty all
0: over. You wouldn't have to know what your wife's doing right now, would you? Hey, maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing.
6: Maybe this guy's wife
0: knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together.
6: Wait.
3: Let me help you.
2: Sleep one night in the house with the shuttered room, Ah! and you may never want to sleep again.
1: That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for being part of the ride this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. To find out anything about anything we talked about here in the show, head over to our website at monsterkidradio.net. You're going to find links to everything. The Rage of the Mummy Facebook page, the band that we played, as well as our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter. You can find us there as well. Of course, you can also find our contact information there, where you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. And I'm going to dial back my typical, ha welcome to Monster Kid Radio enthusiasm, because I want to stress that phone number and that email address, because I'm going to encourage you to use it. Because next week, we are paying tribute to somebody that we lost. Uh, just the other day, as of this recording, There were posts going around on Facebook about the passing of Julie Adams. And I didn't want to believe it. I think I was in a little bit of denial about it. I couldn't find any confirmation about it. Tim Lucas broke the news on his Facebook page, and he was sharing a post that somebody else had posted on their Facebook page who said they heard from Rico Browning. I wanted to hear from the family or somebody who was close with the family before I also said something because, again, I didn't want to believe it. Unfortunately, um, it is true, I did speak to a, a close friend of the family, and they did confirm that it did happen, that uh, Julie had been sick, and it was her time. And it, it was kind of a rough day that day. Uh, listeners, longtime listeners know that I've had a fascination and, and a, a great admiration and, and uh, love for Julie Adams. In in passing, uh, jokingly, I called her my 50s girlfriend, um, and uh, I didn't really hide my feelings about that. She was a wonderful human being. Every time I met with her, which was a couple of times over the years, she was incredibly warm and friendly. Uh, Communication with her son was awesome as well. He kind of handled a lot of her online stuff, and uh, every interview that I've read with her or seen with her on YouTube, like what David Schechter's been posting Um, it just, she was such a warm, kind human being. And next week's episode is going to be a tribute to Julie Adams. I know she didn't do a lot of quote-unquote genre work. We know her for Creature from the Black Lagoon here in the Monster Kid community, but she did so much more. And I'm going to spend next week's episode talking about that, what Julie meant to me, what she did for the genre, of course, but some other movies maybe outside of the Monster Kid wheelhouse that are, just as good, if not better. Yeah, I said it, if not better than Creature. So I'm going to ask you to come back for that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about Julie Adams. If you have any memories of meeting her or any memories of the first time you saw a creature from the Black Lagoon or any thoughts on any of her films or TV, she did so much television, I'd love to ask you to contribute. And you can do that by sending me a recording. Any audio file is fine. You know, Wave, MP3, whatever it is that iPhones do. You can email that to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or you can use the voicemail line. The voicemail number is 503-479-5657. Again, that's 503-4795-MKR. I do want to let you know that that voicemail line does have a hard three-minute limit. So if you have more than three minutes of stuff to say, and it's okay if you do because a lot of people do call in and do, what I do is I take the resulting voicemails and I edit them together into one smooth message. So if you want to call and talk for five, ten minutes, well, feel free. I'll edit everything together and make you sound good. Don't worry about that. It's going to be a different kind of episode next week. Now that uh, this person who is so important to my monster kiddom and to me uh, has passed, I'm not really sure what format or form the show is going to take next week. So um, don't leave me hanging, man. I could use your guys and gals as backup with your thoughts and memories about Julie Adams. I announced this on Facebook the other day, and I have gotten one voicemail so far, I'd love to have more to add to the mix. So that's what you can expect next week on the show. And, you know, on that note, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show by reminding you that all original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Purple Waves. That belongs to the band Lost Culture from their self-titled album, Lost Culture, which you can find at lostculturenj.bandcamp.com That's NJ for New Jersey because they're based out of Asbury Park, New Jersey. Check out their album. There's a handful of tracks available on this release. Well worth it. I mean, go check it out and let them know the Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we talk about Julie Adams. Ciao. (music)